Before we start the show, I have a bit of an announcement to make. Ollie Washburn from last episode passed away the Tuesday after his episode was released. Ollie was 83 years old, being married for 56 years with his wife Lauren. It was actually Lauren that got him to even do an interview with me since he had originally declined. Ollie flew for U.S. Steel for 37 years, and after retiring, he lived in Florida for 21 years. I don't normally talk about this, but I not only created the logbook for entertainment and inspiration purposes, but also to archive these stories for people who would have otherwise not been able to hear them before. That being said, you can learn more about Ollie by checking out episode 24 and the episode's companion web article, which I've updated appropriately on the logbookpodcast.com. Okay, let's get into the show. Welcome to the logbook. I'm your host, Lucas Weekly. This episode's supported by you, the listeners, through Patreon. Head over to thelogbookpodcast.com for more information. This episode, we hear about some minor airline aircraft malfunctions and some interesting places our storyteller had to go flying for news media. My career started, uh, I, I've got interested in flying in, in the 40s when I was very, very young in World War II in Orlando. We would watch all the military flights every day. The sky was full of military airplanes around Orlando. And um, I would lay there and watch them and dream about these aircraft during the rest of World War II. And after World War II, we had a seaplane base right behind our house. And I would lay there. Usually when the winds were out of the south, they would come right over the house at a couple of hundred feet. And I'd just sit there and watch those things. When I did go in the service, uh, I wanted to be, it was in 1958, I wanted to be a mechanic. I wanted to be an auto mechanic because we had fallen in love with cars at that point. And the uh, Air Force says, well, your choice is either going to be an aircraft mechanic or a cook. Of course, that was a tough bargain. It was no options there. So that's how I really got into aviation to start with. I, I guess when we would fly on the KC-97 that I was stationed with, I guess I might have had as much as a thousand hours in that cockpit when we were going someplace, just sitting on a periscope sextant box watching the controls. And when a flight engineer got out of his seat or either one of the pilots, I'd get in that seat and they'd let me fly it occasionally. But uh, after I got out of the service, I was working on my civilian mechanics license, and I happened to tell the instructor one day I thought I would really like to go try flying, and he says, go do it. And he says, if you, uh, if you like it, you can always come back and finish up your civilian mechanics license. So that's what I did. Eventually, one thing led to another, and our storyteller became a captain and a flight engineer for a few commercial airlines. During the time working for them, he did accumulate some interesting stories. I was a flight engineer on, for Continental on the 747, Boeing 747. I spent uh, seven years as a flight engineer on him. One particular flight, we were departing out of uh, Newark on runway four, going to London, and uh, we had about 750,000 pounds of fuel on board in full aircraft. We had just had a, uh, a hydraulic pump failure and they elected to take the shaft out of the hydraulic pump so they could put it back in place. Well, unbeknownst to us, they had screwed up the gasket on it, 
And when we took off, runway four, going to the northeast, we we're uh, losing oil out of the engine. We caught that and shut the oil, shut the engine down on number three. And we departed uh, when we told them we had an emergency and had to return. Uh, they told us to maintain a heading. We had already started dumping fuel. When a 747 is scheduled for a long flight like the one in the story, they carry a lot of fuel. So it's kind of a big deal or an expensive deal if they have to land in a shorter travel distance than they originally intended. That's because a 747 can only land at a certain weight depending on the runway, or it might overshoot it. So to achieve this lighter landing weight, the crew needs to dump the now extra fuel. And in this case, a lot of fuel. And uh, we had to dump 100,000 pounds of fuel before we come back into Newark. And they told us to maintain a heading. And we're dumping fuel all this time. We went uh, right across Manhattan dumping fuel. And we went out over the ocean. Uh, it took us a while to dump that uh, fuel before we came back in. When we did come back into the, the field, we were not quite to our max landing weight of 650,000 pounds. Uh, so we had basically an overweight landing to contend with. And we landed, and um, we taxied in. All of the brake lights were uh, pegged in the red, and we were afraid we were going to blow tires. So we alerted uh, operations to let ground, the ground folks to know to stay away from the wheels because those things are like dynamite if they explode. Well, we told them to stay away from it. Do not chalk the aircraft. And we taxied in, and the uh, engines is uh, leaking oil all over the place. And we looked at it and all of the chocks are in place. So we knew that at that point they'd gone up around those wheels. It's a mandatory, unless you have brake cooling fans, you have to wait for, I think, 55 minutes before you can take off again. Of course, by that time they had to work on this engine and put a new gasket in it and then uh, refuel the aircraft and redispatch. So uh, we were able to get back out uh, a little over an hour after that. So that's just one of the experiences. It's almost like uh, a normal thing after you train for it in simulators. It's not a big deal, but it's just part of, uh, of airline flying. Back in, I guess, 1973, I had a co-pilot's window blow out uh, at altitude and sucked everything out of the cockpit. They sucked the curtain behind the co-pilot seat out and it went around the right prop and I thought it was going to go into that engine and wipe out that turbine and it sucked out all of my approach plates and everything so I had to rely completely on approach control to get to a, an alternate destination and make an approach. I've had complete hydraulic failures uh, and no fires of any kind. Our storyteller was also able to fly private aircraft and while doing so he went to some very unique places at some pretty historic times. We did, uh, in the 80s, I flew Learjets uh, for um, a charter organization, and we did a, a lot of news media flying. And we did have um, one particular flight for the U.S. Marshal's office. We had just gotten back in from a, a trip into um, El Salvador with the ABC and the U.S. Marshal call, U.S. Marshal's office called us, and we, they needed us to go to uh, La Paz, Bolivia, to pick up the two guys that had bombed the LaGuardia Airport uh, in 1974. They had put a bomb in a locker, and I think it killed a couple of people. 
They had been free for years. Apparently, these guys were hunting, running some kind of hit squad out of Uruguay or Paraguay, and they did something to really make somebody mad down there, and they told the U.S. Marshal's office, if you come get them, we will deliver them to you. Well, we had to fly from Orlando to La Paz, Bolivia, pick these guys up, drop them at, in Argentina. Uh, I forget the name of the airstrip over there now. But I said, well, why don't you just have us come back up and we can come through Panama and it would be easier. That way we could fly them back up for you. And they said, no, we can't go through any place that has a U.S. magistrate's office. It had to, we had to get them straight to New York. Well, in fact, the, the way the whole thing started... I had to call the factory and uh, find out how to operate this aircraft because the aircraft is only rated to 10,000 feet and the airport is 13,500 foot elevation. So we we were just below, we were I think a few hundred feet below the altitude where the uh, oxygen mask would automatically drop out of the ceiling. So you'd have those things dangling all over the place. So uh, one of the, the factory told us is, we're not having this conversation, but this is the way you do it. So we were able to fly the whole flight. And they said there'd be a couple of marshals. Well, when we got there, these two two prisoners were huge. And not just two U.S. marshals, four big guys. And we were going to be grossed out with that thing. And here we are taking off of a, an airport that's 13,500 feet in elevation. And that was the length of the runway. We took our, oh, actually, before we got to that point, we were waiting on an aircraft to come in from Uruguay to meet it. And we met a, um, an FBI agent and a, a drug enforcement guy that were working in Central America. And they took us to lunch. And uh, he said, you need some cocaine tea. And I said, well, I can't drink anything like that. And he says, well, it's not like that at all. It's just regular tea. They make co uh, tea out of cocaine leaves, and it doesn't have any effect like it does, I guess, when you're smoking or whatever. But um, we, when we finally take off of this airport, La Paz, we, get, we rotated, but it wouldn't climb. And we went off the end of the runway, and we were airborne about the time we, the wheels left. The, the, hey, we went over the edge of that cliff and struggled to get that thing into the air. And uh, then we went on in, and, and I guess the neatest thing was when we pulled in there, they parked us right beside the um, uh, British Airways uh, Concord jet. And I think we could have taxied our Lear, our Learjet right under the wing of that thing. It was so high off the ground. And we, when we finished that, we uh, got a few hours sleep and then straight back to Orlando. We used to do a lot of work with the Lear uh, to different corporations in 1980, when we were flying for uh, CBS News, I think it was CBS, we went to uh, El Salvador after they had that uh, upheaval down there. And they were having to keep us on the seventh floor because of the gunfire around the hotel. They wanted to keep us from getting shot. And a lot of nights you wake up and you hear the machine gun fire outside the hotel. Well, the day before the big event, they had us fly to Bogota, Colombia to pick up two more newsmen for this event. It was called, the guy's name was Ike Seaman and Mike Silver. We picked them up and brought them back in and we got into El Salvador just after dark. And the newsman that met us says, hey, they've just, uh, it looks like they're setting up a, an ambush on the coast highway. 
says we need to take the uh, Highland route back in. So it was uh, illegal for them to bring in bulletproof vests, but they had they were trying to smuggle these bullet bulletproof vests into the country. They asked us if we would carry those in for us, and we're I swear it must have been ninety degrees at night, and we're we put this thing on under our shirts. And uh, the other pilot that was flying with me was an old World War II B-25 pilot, uh, Earl Kelly. He bought some rum that while we were in Columbia, and uh, we started on this rum. By the time we got to the mountain road, we were bulletproof anyhow. We had had enough rum in us. It wasn't going to hurt us to get shot anyhow. But we never did have any, never did have any problems at all with it. When they, uh, we had the, they had the event, these people had shot a, a priest. I think his name was Romero. Uh, when they're having the services for him, that somebody started some, a stampede, scared the people, and it uh, injured a lot of the news crews. We were actually running news back and forth to uh, Panama each day. We would run it down there, the videos, and they would uh, send it satellite feed to New York so the rest of the nation could see it. The newsmen apparently recovered. It was they weren't injured too badly. My one of my first flights for news media was NBC in 1978 with a, a small Lear. It was a 24. We got a call to go to uh, Georgetown, Guyana, for the Jonestown massacre, and uh, we flew to Puerto Rico and picked up. Uh, a lady, it was her first overseas assignment, and we took her on down to uh, Guyana, and she she was going into that city and that com- compound where they were where the massacre was, and back out uh, each day. She's bringing the videos back, and we would take them to Trinidad each night, and we did that for two weeks until our tires got so bad on the Learjet that we had to call for somebody to come replace us where our landing lights were out and our tires were all bald from so many takeoffs and landings that uh, we just couldn't take a chance and stay in there any longer. And at this point, I've got over 25,000 flight hours. I guess I'm rated in uh, about five different business jets and the 737. Uh, I was a captain on the 737 and a flight engineer rating on uh, Airbus A300s and Boeing 747s. Jim Connell has been retired for 15 years, but of course he's still an avid aviator. He has his own airstrip and a hangar where he keeps his Cessna 172 that he uses for various EAA Young Eagles events, and he also has a Piper Cub. He and his wife also raise cattle on their property. You can check out pictures of Jim, his aircrafts, and more information related to these stories by going to the article at thelogbookpodcast.com. This episode was supported directly by your donations. If you enjoy the show, you can support its production by becoming a patron. Through Patreon, you set a donation level that is given every time a new episode is released, and you can always set a monthly limit so you don't go over your budget. Depending on the amount donated, you are granted access to different rewards that are as simple as hearing a sneak preview to the next episode, all the way up to exclusive content that didn't make it into the show. Any amount is helpful, and the more that's donated, the more the show can improve. Head over to our website, thelogbookpodcast.com, and click on the Patreon banner at the side of the page to start supporting. Also, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps bring awareness to the logbook. 
If you have a story about anything in aviation, we would love to hear it, and it may even become an episode of the logbook. You can send us an email by using the contact page on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you come back for the next entry in the logbook.